0: Welcome to Biz 503. Today's topic is Fighting Poverty, Programs That Work, along with Perry Gruber, who is with Copiosis. I'm Rebecca Webb, founder of Portland Radio Project. For all the challenges, there are organizations successfully lifting families from despair to stability. And today we're going to talk to folks from some of the most impactful poverty fighting programs in this city, among them Friends of the Children, Sisters of the Road, and the Classic Wines Auction.
1: But joining us now to lay out the Portland Poverty issue for us are Dino Biag, Sustainable (laughs) Families Program Manager at Birch Community Services, uh, Tony Hobson, founder of Self-Enhancement Incorporated, and Judy Strand, CEO of Metropolitan Family Services. Welcome, everybody. It's pretty clear that we have a homeless problem here in Portland, but maybe the poverty issue is somewhat concealed by invisibility for most Portland residents. Who wants to take the first stab at clarifying more specifically what is the nature of the poverty issue here in Portland?
2: I think the most important thing is some of the statistics that you just said, just to understand that a full third of our population in, in Multnomah County are living in poverty, but the depth of that poverty is hard to see, in part because the way we measure poverty is with antiquated federal guidelines that say that a family of four are in poverty if they're making $24,000 a year, mm-hmm. and we know wow. that in order to live in Portland, you need at least $70,000. So, what we're really talking about is is a bigger problem than the statistics show.
0: Just describe the impact, and I know that this is something that probably Dino and Tony are going to want to weigh in on as well. What is the impact on children? And this is a very general question, but take a stab at it. What is the impact on children of pretty significant poverty? How does that manifest for kids?
3: It becomes really obvious at the at the school site uh, how it manifests itself because today when we think about education, most often we're only talking about education as it relates to what goes on in a classroom. But I tell folks, you know, education and the issues of poverty start at home. They follow kids throughout the environment in which they live, and then they show up at school. So if you want to talk about kids that are being suspended or expelled, kids that aren't doing well academically, a lot of the root causes of that are back at home. Whether or not a kid eats is an issue. Whether or not the lights were on last night, those are an issue. I mean, you have, you know, families that are torn apart by poverty, and that manifests itself in bad educational situations for young people all the time. This is a really complicated issue, isn't it?
1: Because when you try to get back to the root cause of poverty, I think you have to go back generations, don't you? Is it the parent who is giving birth to a child in poverty that person's fault if the parent Herself was also raised in poverty. You see what I'm saying? This kind of a chain of events.
4: Generational influence is massive, and you see it when families are hit at an economic level, struggling to make rent, struggling to provide healthy food on the table, and that causes an epic amount of stress, which the kids pick up and sense, um, which then affects their ability to learn, affects their ability to relate with other kids. It creates a, a platform of consistent imagery and messaging that. This is how life has been. This is how life is going to be. And that messaging embedded into a, a child's psyche at a young age is really hard to overcome.
0: So what kinds of services, Dino Biaggio from a Birch Community Services, would you give us an idea of what families are coming to you and what do they need?
4: Yeah, great question. A lot of the families that come to us, they need margin, financial margin, relational margin. And part of how they get that is by the food that they have access to, clothes, household items, things like that, that deal with the kind of the immediate need of, I need healthy food so that I can deal with life tomorrow. And then another thing they have access to is the education component of finance classes, work skills, life skills, things that help fit together and support kind of the margin that they get.
0: Can you just talk a little bit more about that word margin? I mean, that is really symbolic, isn't it?
4: Yeah, it's a word that we love to use at Merch and probably many other people love. I mean, everybody likes margin. An example I use is claustrophobic's really like margin. They don't like enclosed spaces and financially speaking, families are the same way. They like having that extra ability to make choices and that's what margin does. It gives you the ability to choose a different way to do things.
1: I've been around this issue for some time. This idea of margin and the the word itself being used in this context is brand new to me. How long has that been around?
4: I couldn't tell you. I like it because I think it it makes sense and and I think it connects with people. It's a little bit different way to talk about Mm -hmm. savings or it's a little bit different way to talk about extra. Mm -hmm. um, And I think there's some intentionality associated with it.
0: And if you don't have it, what shape are you in? Mm -hmm.
4: It's rough. And that stress kicks in. The math doesn't work. And then you got to decide, do I get healthy food for my kids or do I pay the light bill?
0: Tony, what sorts of families are coming to SEI? You guys have been around for a long time. time. Very successful program. In today's world, tell us who are the families coming to you and what do they need?
3: I think I I could just add to what Dino was saying. I mean, I I think the kinds of families that are showing up is quite varied now. I mean, there was a time when we were looking at folks on the lower end of the economic strata. You know, perhaps they had been on public assistance uh, and those kinds of things. But obviously, when we had the downturn, I mean, a lot of those families that at one point were doing well, found themselves in trouble, and in many cases, coming to us uh, for basic survival. I mean, they don't use the the word margin. I mean, we we talk about it in terms of uh, options and opportunity, and many of the families that show up, they don't have any options, they don't have any opportunity. All all they have is themselves and sometimes their child that they're dragging alongside of them, wondering either how I'm going to pay the rent, how I'm going to keep the lights on, what kind of food, where is it at, or in some cases, where am I going to sleep? Tomorrow, And if, in fact, they can't get the immediate support, it's basically on the streets for them. So when people are looking at this situation, sometimes we just don't realize the immediacy of it. Most folks have struggled for a long time before they get to a point of being homeless, and they've tried a number of things, and it hasn't worked. And then they're knocking on your door. And when they're knocking on your door, it's not like, you know, I got a week or I got a month. Oftentimes it's like tomorrow. I mean, if you can't help me now, I'm on the street. So any number of of types of families that we end up dealing with now that have those kind of circumstances and that we're trying to provide that immediate support for them right away.
1: Speaking of the media support, I'd be interested to hear from any of you a characterization of the ecosystem that provides the type of support that you're talking about, Tony. Like, give us a flavor of how large this industry, if I could use that word, is? How many agencies are out there helping people out? Everyone's shaking their heads like...
3: Yeah, we're all kind of looking at each other (laughs) and never never thought about that, but there is a lot. Um, And the need is overwhelming. Go ahead, Junie.
2: What I see is that there's a a number of us, both for-profit and non-profit and government, providing basic needs, safety net support so that the hunger relief, the immediate food, the shelter, we see winter shelters, those are just proliferating. Faith communities are stepping in. What I don't see as much is a concerted collaborative effort across sectors to help people with the issue that that you raised a minute ago, Dino, with regard to financial literacy, because I think the families we're seeing at MFS are working families often who are working more than one job. They can't get to their work and get their kids to school. They don't have a car. They have to drive two hours to get there. So we offer them a low interest car loan so they can get a car to get to work. And that asset then triggers an amazing amount of prosperity for that individual. And it's those kinds of, I guess I'd call it beyond the margin that we're looking at so that, you know, together we work cross-sector to move people forward.
0: That has been something I've wondered since you all have such successful programs. Why is there not more collaboration among, say, public officials and other organizations?
3: I don't know. Tough question. We we all wonder about that. I, I think it's much harder to collaborate and partner than people realize. I mean, Judy and I are part of a a collaboration Successful Families 2020. And, you know, it, it, we've been working together for going on two years now. And, you know, for the first year and a half, it was a, a lot of work just building trust and understanding what mm-hmm. each agency actually does. I mean, everybody tends to be a little territorial about what it is that, that you're doing. And the systems just aren't in place. The funding sources don't lend themselves well to this kind of work. I mean, because you, you end up competing more often than working together because there's minimal money. So everybody is struggling for that last crumb in order to get your service delivery system in place. So all of those things come to play, but we all talk about it and in my opinion, having been in this business and running self-enhancement for 35 years, this question is the question. How can we collaborate? How can we partner? How can you develop, you know, the buzzword now is the collective impact, uh, so to speak, to where you can build a deeper and wider safety net and scale up these services so that more families and children can be taken care of. We're all much stronger as a collective than we are with any one of our individual agencies because, as you said, Rebecca, in this room we have very successful agencies who serve children and families every day, but we still got a problem that's growing. So at some point, we got to recognize that doing this as an individual agency must not be the answer because we can't scale up and get to enough folks by ourselves.
1: Judy Ordino, do you, uh, obviously you agree with what Tony's saying because you're nodding your heads, but do the funders feel the same way that you do? So on the opposite side of the money, are they saying we need to see more collaboration and are they trying to do something to change those elements of the system that Tony's talking about that prevent collaboration and actually seem to enhance competition between nonprofits?
2: Well, I would say there's been a real effort in that regard by key organizations. United Way is a perfect example. We're part of a 30 agency collaborative that's focused on reducing childhood poverty that United Way is spearheading and that's an effort for us all to look at best practices together and work in a unified manner but the other collaborative that Tony mentioned, United Way is giving us the steering wheel and they're really trusting that the approaches that we've developed over these many decades are what should steer us out of this hole we're in.
1: What do you mean by they've given you the steering what, what specifically does that look like?
2: Well, Successful Families 2020 is a collaborative of culturally specific and culturally responsive organizations there's six of us and we're really calling the shots on the way that we're delivering the services. Instead of the funder asking us to do one, two, three, we're saying this is what's worked, this is what we're going to do together, and they're coming alongside of us.
0: Did you want to chime in on that, Dino?
2: Um, Just a little bit. I mean, I think any
4: nonprofit that receives monies is extremely grateful. And with that gratefulness comes requirements and, you know, they want to see metrics and they want to see all that kind of stuff. But results. I'm, yeah. Results. Thank you. Um, but we're seeing more and more of the foundations. Lisa's relates to Birch with a greater sense of urgency. Like we want to see the results. But we want to see you the, the greater impact, not just with that one family, but how is it looking from in the community as a result of working with one family?
0: Is that easy to, to demonstrate <laughs> the results? <laughs> seems like that'd be a little challenging.
4: Yeah, some of them are easier to measure than others. It's really hard to measure a, a marriage being healed because of stress. It's really hard to measure that. It's easy to measure, like, well, they came in with X amount of debt, they left with X amount of debt we saw the change easier to measure the qualitative stuff is a lot harder
0: So our listener wants to know how Portland stacks up with other cities. This came a a question to us off the talk board. Is Portland worse than other cities, presumably regarding the issues that that we're talking about, poverty and homelessness?
3: I I really don't have enough information on other cities to be able to feel confident in in giving a strong answer uh, in some of the travels that I've had. If I'm talking about poverty, if I'm talking about education, if I'm talking about unemployment, especially as it relates to poor families and families, Families of color. I mean, I I wouldn't suggest that uh, the Portland metro area is any worse. I mean, every major city that I go to, I find similar issues. I do find that a lot of people tend to talk about our homeless population mm-hmm. yeah. being much worse and being a little bit more obvious than we find in some other places. But I, I think in many ways, Portland has done a pretty good job in identifying some of the challenges in my areas as, as we talk about education and, and social services and with the, the county, the, the Portland's children's levy. I mean, there's some pretty innovative things uh, that some of our government entities are actually doing in this town that I think far exceed what I see in some of the other cities in terms of coming together and putting real resources behind some of the challenges that we're having. Is Portland recognized for those things, Tony? Uh, and in, 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 in some ways. Even, you know, I'm just coming from a meeting with the Sun System, Schools Uniting Neighborhoods, and, you know, they, they get publicity from around the nation. I mean, people actually come here to look at that particular effort. With our United Way piece, I don't know whether it's got national publicity as of yet, but I, I think it's very innovative to put out a grant and require that a collaborative effort apply for it. I mean, by the nature of the grant, that that's, you know, that's innovative out there. And then we could talk about what's happening. Judy spoke a little bit about Multnomah County and some of the changes that they made just in the funding stream. Historical for a county government to look at its funding stream and recognize that 70% of the folks getting the service were folks of color, but only 30% of the money were going to coastal specific organizations, and then totally change the funding mechanism to force the resources to Cozy specific organization, but you won't find that in any other town mm-hmm. where folks have gone that far. So we've been pretty innovative here.
0: We probably should have mentioned this off the top, but I want to remind people or tell people who don't know that Tony Hobson had an opportunity to be a professional basketball player oh. and decided not to pursue that <laughs> in, favor <laughs> of, <laughs> in favor of improving his community. So let, let me just ask you with the impact that you've had over decades, and I know your son coming in now, running some of the programs at SEI. Any regrets?
3: Oh, not at all. I mean, I'm not going to take credit for what you said, though, because if I had a, a real choice in that, I might have went ahead and gone. Uh, I did try to pursue that. I, I didn't make it. <laughs> I probably could have played overseas. But no, I have no regrets. When I look back at my life's work thus far, there's no way being a professional athlete could ever stack up against the kind of work mm-hmm. that we've been able to do in the Portland metro area and the lives that we've been able to touch. I mean, I can try travel all over this country now and invariably I'm going to run into an SEI kid that's going to tell me stories about how we impacted their life and you know basketball is a great sport great way to to, to make resources but in terms of changing individual lives there's absolutely no comparison to that and and what I have uh, the pleasure of doing every day
0: the challenges though around these programs and these issues are deep and complex as Perry alluded to we have some more heavy hitters coming up. We have Duncan Campbell from Friends of the Children and also Shannon Cogan from Sisters of the Road. And they're going to help us zero in on what the, you know, what the tough nut is to crack in some of these programs when we come back.
1: Welcome back to Biz 503 on PRP. This is Perry Gruber of Copiosis, co-hosting with Rebecca Webb of Portland Radio Project.
0: Today we're looking at what's being done to fight poverty in Portland. Every year in Multnomah County, thousands of people fall into homelessness, joining the thousands who are already there.
1: There are programs doing important work every day to stop this, but they can't bail out the boat fast enough. So now we're going to speak to folks with change-making organizations and hear from them what roadblocks they navigate while trying to end
0: poverty. Still with us from the last segment, Judy Strand, CEO of Metropolitan Family Services, also Tony Hobson with Self-Enhancement Incorporated, and joining us now, Community Engagement Co-Manager and Board Link at Sisters of the Road Cafe, Shannon Kogan, along with Duncan Campbell, founder of Friends of the Children. Welcome. So glad you could be here. Hey, Duncan, can we start with you? And if you wouldn't mind, tell us a bit of your story, how you came to found it, because it was for very personal reasons.
5: We found it based on a number of different reasons. One was obviously my childhood. And actually, Tony and I grew up in the same neighborhood. And my family was on welfare. And we were in poverty most of my early life. And then and they came from a very distant mother and father and other challenging circumstances. And that laid the foundation for the creation of Friends of the Children, which also was based on research and then my own experience working at the juvenile court for four years.
0: I'm going to ask you a question that uh, actually I asked Tony in the last segment, what is the impact? It's obviously had a very positive impact over the long term because of your founding of Friends of the Children, but what is the impact in your assessment and your experience of poverty on a child?
5: Well, it dominates their life. I mean, If I remember a number of things in my own childhood, uh, the being a welfare family and uh, all the things that go with it and the shame and embarrassment, but uh, more importantly, when you have parents, like Tony says, a great thing, we have a parent problem, not a children problem, but for those, unfortunately, who don't have a strong enough parent, you need to give them support, so they don't, uh, educational support, so they don't, they get out of high school, counseling support, And, and friends is all about building a relationship over 12 years that does that, and changes the child's life, but I think Tony and I can both speak to what negatives carry over to our childhood, so you can imagine children who haven't had the good fortune that Tony and I have.
1: So what what is the philosophy of approach here? So this is going back to the question I asked at the beginning, and Duncan, feel free to answer this one. This chain of poverty that goes from generation to generation, do you focus the services on the child, expecting that when that child, if you're able to get that child out of poverty in some way, that person will then break the chain? Or do you focus on the child's parents in hoping to break the chain there? Or do you do both? Or what's, what's the approach philosophically?
5: Our, our passion and focus is the child. We come alongside the family, compliment the family when we can, help with resources, but we believe almost all of our children are in poverty and we want to break the intergenerational poverty cycle, but to do that, you need to come alongside of them and once again, you know, none of our children almost read a level. So there's one, for example, and that we build on that over the 12 and a half years we're with them, so they they are not a dropout like a high percentage of the parents and they're, and they're not in the juvenile justice system, let alone the the um, adult one, where they come, where 65% of their parents are incarcerated, and then early parenting. That we've been very successful at that in terms of, uh, you know, the barriers that's inter- nobody wants to say it are very few. It's clearly intergenerational, and you got to break that cycle, and that's our our main focus.
3: Just want to add one thing to to what Duncan is saying, and, and I, I don't disagree because I think we focus on the kid as well, but I often say, show me an at-risk kid. I would ask you to follow that. Kid. Kid home, and I'll show you some at risk adults. Don't have a youth problem in America, have an adult problem. So, you, you really, if you really want to rectify this issue, you got to deal with both. But long term, it's going to be about the kid because if you can turn that kid around to where they eventually don't have the same circumstance as their parents have, then you know you can win that way. But if you're not dealing with the parents at all, it is that much more difficult to turn a kid around who's going home to a dysfunctional family every evening and they're not getting any service.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to add that I think it really depends upon the situation for us. You know, we're a multi-service agency. We do a lot of intergenerational mentoring with older adults working with children directly, and that is highly effective just as it is with Friends of the Children in many, many levels, including literacy attainment, but also that self-esteem piece. But when we're seeing families that are struggling to make ends meet they really often need help with how to best parent and how to best assist their children so doing some parent coaching and support in the home is sometimes the most valuable thing so that they're empowered to support their kids so it really depends upon who is there and who has the need at the given time so
1: I'm really curious about the another aspect of the work you guys do when you you do some work with the parents or you do some work with the kids and then the parents have to go to this crappy job or the, the kids have to go to this ter- Terrible, no offense to the schools, but the terrible school system where the teachers are maybe jaded or cynical and, and then they have to deal with the, the institutional aspect of American education where they're they're sitting in a chair all day and instead of having more of a holistic, you know what I'm talking about. Or if
0: there's chair. lucky, if there is a chair for them. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. and so, so how do you, in, or do you, do you interact with these institutions that are having a huge impact on the family, both on the children and the parents? And how do you do that? Well,
2: you know, Tony talked earlier about Schools United Neighborhoods. It's a community school model where we're wrapping services around low-resource schools. And I guess one thing I would say is if you go to these schools that you hear about, they're a lot better than you think they are. You walk down the halls and you see happy children. You see a lot of need and you can feel it, but I see a lot of compassionate teachers and educators. And I think that the community school movement has brought in a vast number of partners to address those needs holistically. And I think that's important to notice. All three
0: of your programs, SEI, Friends of the Children and Metropolitan Family Services, have just identified this need for a key adult role model and relationship. So that seemed to me some common ground there. I'm just wondering, Shannon, if you end up maybe having some visitors to Sisters of the Road who never found those kinds of
6: adult relationships. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case for a number of people that we see. And I I also want to say that at Sisters, we are not interacting with school systems and things like that in the same way. But I would say that when we are talking about why people are living in poverty and why there are consistently generational poverty and why there's consistently people who are having problems at school and those sorts of things, we are also looking at a broader picture. we in the cafe are focusing on relationships that we're building, but we're also seeking systemic solutions and saying, like, well, why does this keep happening? Why are people consistently coming into our cafe because they can't hold down a job and make the money to pay for a fancy restaurant in the Pearl District next door? And so I think there's a really important conversation to be had about the individual, but also the upstream things that are happening that are sending people down to us.
0: And so, what are you finding as some answers to? that that question, what are some of the upstream causes?
6: I think a lot of things that we are seeing at Sisters are a lack of support for folks who don't have their own personal support network. So in the cafe in particular, we'll see people who are coming in a lot at the end of the month when they run through their food stamps. We're also seeing a lack of affordable housing and that lack of stability affects every part of someone's life. You don't have a home to go to if you're a student, you don't have a home to go to every single day to do your work, to know where you're going to get a good meal that will fill you up so you can pay attention in school the next day. That's really huge and has impacts that, as all of these folks are saying, resonate throughout the rest of your life.
1: So we had an interesting question coming over the talk board. It's really interesting. Is is poverty getting worse or is the population simply growing? Who wants to take a first stab at that?
6: Go ahead, Shannon. I think that something that, that we know at Sisters is that, yes, the population is growing and we we are not as a society as our our public resources are not also growing. So over the years there have been cuts to programs that provide housing for people who don't have a lot of money. And so as our population grows and we're not also growing the amount of housing, then we're seeing more people on the streets, of course. So very easy to see so it's really solid. Yeah. Did you want to add?
3: I want to go back to one point that you made earlier with regards to the systems and, and working with systems and changing systems. I already pointed out with Multnomah County some of the system change that they made, which was, was huge. But those of us who work with schools are seeing a lot of changes that occurred there. I mean, we were fortunate enough to, to build a relationship through Portland Public Schools at Jefferson, and you know, over a five-year period was able to uh, move their graduation rates from you know 55% all the way up over 80%. But that was because of their willingness to buy into our services and the fact that the school district now recognizes that They can't fill all the gaps. I mean, a teacher that's in the classroom trying to teach can't teach. If, if Jamal is hungry, I mean, if Jamal got issues based on not knowing what's going to happen when they get back home, that's a difficult task for a teacher. Now that we realize that education encompasses more than what teachers and administrators can do, now we can look at the environment that kids come from and the home. So so those are system changes that the district is making in terms of resources to buy those additional support services for kids. And, and to me, that's the right direction. I
0: felt like you wanted to say something, Duncan, well, I want to
3: This was
5: in your first segment also, and basically the services to children system is broken. I mean, 40 years ago, we did a report at the City Club about focusing on prevention versus intervention and rehabilitation, and it's just taking root over the last five years where you're seeing a stronger emergence of zero to three, zero to five, zero to eight, and we're passionate about that, but once again, the system isn't funding it. But the Multnomah County did a great thing years ago. They took the three leading homeless youth is programs and said, you're overlapping each other. We've funded you, but we want each of you to pick an area, focus on it, and then we'll reallocate and redesign. But unfortunately, they didn't sustain that system. We need to come together, as earlier comments were made, and somebody will have the courage to lead that that process, so we do design the whole system for children, because now it's all focused on juvenile justice backwards, when it should be from a young child, baby, all the way through the age of 18.
1: Kind of hesitating to ask this question because of the esteemed audience our guests that we have. What if a business person is out there thinking, you know, this is not as big a problem as you guys are making it. Why are we spending all this money on this situation? you know, these entitlement programs you're talking about, you know, that kind of, what do you say to someone like that who's listening to this to this broadcast?
5: Well, I'll start, and the others can comment. Uh, I come from a business background and grew a business, and actually, that's a myth. The reality is, for example, even the Crime Commission in the City of Portland over a decade ago did a study. And if you really want to prevent crime, you need to start with early childhood, the same premise that Tony and I passionately, you know, believe in. and uh, And you need to recycle but what business can do to help is be a, a leader to say let's fund programs that are real that work you know like self enhancement and and candidly friends of the children. But the people are locked in still historically to the juvenile justice system, and we need to care about these children at a much earlier age.
1: What, what do you mean they're locked in historically? I don't understand.
5: Well, oh, the, the entire system, incarceration and McLaren is the end of the road. Oh, I see. But then you have the juvenile court and the, and the county, and it's too late. I mean, there's it's very challenging to change a 15- to 8-year-old unless they're really open to, to uh, being changed. But you can still change a six-year-old child, seven-year-old child up eight, nine, and then you start losing them, just like we'll lose our own children if we don't be a great parent, like Tony said. Judy,
0: yeah. Uh,
3: yeah. go ahead. John. Well, I just would add this really quickly that Perfect. I would tell that business person to look at the demographics and think about who is he going to be hiring who is he or she going to be hiring in the future? And they're more likely to be some of the folks that we're trying to provide services for right now. I mean, we got to recognize this country is changing colors at a pretty rapid pace. And if, in fact, there's a, a disproportionate number of folks of color not making it, I don't know who you think are going to be on the front lines of, of, of working for you unless we can do a better job in educating poor children and children in color and get them into the workforce where color does no longer matter.
2: Yeah, and I was just going to add that I think that as soon as a person meets the people that we work with, everything changes. And if a person becomes a board member and they tour our programs, they've often come back and said their lives have changed because they saw that our staff are working so hard for so little. And changing the world. So I've seen a lot of epiphanies. And I would
6: absolutely echo that sentiment of building relationships is key to business owners understanding that there's no need to demonize those. We especially see that 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 live outside and are purported to prevent business from coming to their doors. And I, I think that's absolutely not true. And if we're giving money to people from infancy to like help them, be stronger and more full engaged citizens, then we're going to have more people shopping at your businesses and and participating in our society in that way.
0: I do think first-hand experience in touring some of these services and meeting the people who are involved is a life changer. I visited uh, SEI probably 20 years ago. And uh, and it was it was life-changing, absolutely. Well, I'm going to give you the question from the talk board, but we're not going to answer it till we come back. And that is whether Portland's government's doing everything it can right now.
1: Well, thank you for all of our guests, Duncan and Judy and Tony and Shannon, for being here. There are big hurdles to overcome, but these programs are making a difference. We'll learn more about on-the-ground initiatives that are working after our short break.
0: Welcome back. I'm Rebecca Webb of Portland Radio Project, co-hosting with Perry Gruber of Copiosis.
1: This episode of Biz 503 is tackling the issue of Portland's poverty and homeless crisis. In previous segments, we've covered some of the challenges slowing down positive change.
0: Now we're welcoming back guests to tell us what's working and why. And we're going to meet Heather Martin, Executive Director of Classic Wines Auction, which has a lot of interesting things going on. Thanks for being here, Heather.
7: Thank you for having me.
0: Shannon Cogan is still with us from Sisters of the Road Cafe. Welcome back, Shannon. Thanks. Duncan Campbell with Friends of the Children. Thanks for hanging out. Duncan?
5: My pleasure.
0: And Dino Biaggi with Birch Community Services. Welcome back. Thank you. Hey, Dino, the listener tapping a question into our talk board today wanted to know whether Portland's government's doing everything it can right now. Can I just broaden that question out for you and just ask you, does Birch have positive partnerships with local government agencies? How are you working together with local government?
4: Or are you? Great question. Most of our work is with other agencies and nonprofits. I I think there's work being done in you know southeast Portland and, and border Gresham kind of areas that I'm not necessarily privy to. I'm sure it's happening, but my work is so micro that I'm not really connected to what's happening. The,
0: the reason I think it's a great question is just because of some of the discussions so far has indicated that Multnomah County apparently made some changes in recent years that facilitated greater coming together of some of the nonprofits. But that, I believe Duncan said, you know wasn't sustained. And there are so many fabulous organizations trying to address these problems. You know, it really, uh, an emerging theme seems to be, if only we were working together, we could have more impact. Maybe Heather would be a good person to talk about that, because your classic wine auction funds so many different agencies. Mm-hmm.
7: That's um, that's true. I mean, that's the, the basis for our mission is combining the efforts and the resources of multiple partners, multiple nonprofits for the better good, the idea that, you know, all Rise together. And so our model taps into the resources of not only our nonprofit, but then our six charity partners um, and their supporters and their resources so for tell the success us, of, of everybody. Tell us how it works. Yeah. So, our mission we are a fundraising nonprofit essentially. And so, our mission uh, is to benefit children and family charities. So, we pre select charity partners to work with us in a, a year cycle. We also strive to maintain relationships with our charity partners over time. So so, although it's a year cycle, we hope and aim to have long-term uh, relationships with our charities, which we have managed to do. And those charities have goals, so they help with procuring, securing uh, sponsorships, all of those kinds of things that go into any um, event. And we come together and um, and pool all those resources. This year, we raised over three million dollars, and then those charities receive the net proceeds from that year's events. So it's significant. For them, each charity on average receives about $300,000, usually more, and those are unrestricted funds, which is really significant, um, as any charity knows. Often, if you can receive funds from foundations or other sources, there are usually restrictions or parameters, not to say that we just willy-nilly are sharing those funds, but we do defer to the expertise of our charity partners for them to determine the best ways to use that.
0: Is there any kind of a mechanism that sort of encourages them
7: to work together? Yes, I mean all of our meetings, all all that we do is, uh, is collaborative so everyone is involved from the very beginning and we're very transparent with how things work and how folks work together and there is a lot of collaboration not only with our events and how we work together but what we see is the charities themselves outside of Classic Wines are finding ways to collaborate externally so now they have new partnerships and relationships maybe that started with classic wines, but have expanded beyond classic wine.
1: So, what is the what is the average longevity of a relationship you have with a nonprofit organization?
7: Well, I can tell you, Judy Strand from MFS can speak to this as well. We have been partners with with them since 32 years ago. They actually started the event, and then over time transitioned and, and grew. 12 years ago, we became a, a separate nonprofit an independent nonprofit, still benefiting them. Friends of the Children has been involved for the last 11 years. Um, new avenues for youth for 12 years so we are very proud of being able to sustain those long-term relationships
1: so so classic wines is a business
7: it is a nonprofit so it's we're a, non-profit.
1: a 501c3 before were you something before you became a nonprofit well
7: no we were we just existed within mfs so we it oh. was an event a fundraising event within mfs so it's always been nonprofit okay. people just
0: went to a party yes. and drank some wine right. and bought some wine yes. and that's
7: how you raise right. your money yep. right <laughs> the first year from I understand they raised $9,000 and then this year we raised over $3 million that's awesome
0: Let's talk about the government uh, relationship, because it sounds like you are doing a great job of, you know, sort of introducing nonprofits to each other and getting them working together and helping fund them. But what about the the government piece that Duncan mentioned was so successful with Multnomah County? Can you talk a little bit about specifically what they did and why it went away and how we can maybe get that back?
5: In that particular case, it was an outside, you know, intervention that was the catalyst and it should have been the model for redesigning the whole social service system, but it didn't. All we've had is fragmented pieces. Another great part of the government and the community is actually the Children's Levy, and uh, it, it supports evidence-based programs that are supposed to be non-political with programs that have real outcomes and really change children's lives and get them out of poverty. And that's been a, a transforming event, not only for friends of the children, but others who are benefit from the Children's Levy. And there's change, in, and we've been fortunately supported by the city, the county, and the state for years, but all fragmented pieces versus, once again, a coordinated system. And as I mentioned earlier, someday there'll be somebody in a group that rises up and is bold and challenging to say, look, this is what works. This doesn't work. We need to rearrange the system reallocate resources in a way that really changes more uh, children's lives and, and breaks intergenerational poverty.
1: So we have another question from the talk board. We have such a big poverty issue. How do you measure
0: positive impacts? Yeah, that's a good question. How Uh, do you measure results?
6: I mean, we at Sisters would measure the results by people not needing to come in and use us as a restaurant. We would like to just become a regular cafe in downtown Portland. That would be our simplest measure. But I think that if you are walking around Portland anywhere or going to any sort of neighborhood, you're seeing people living outside. And so that is an in your face hello there are people who do not have a place to sleep inside tonight and so I don't know of any like quantitative measures that I would use but I would say if your community is sleeping outside then you need to talk about how your community can support itself
5: well let me give you a couple examples of of data and, and numbers so for example you know I'm all about outcomes and I'm all about children but for us you know 83% percent of our kids graduate from high school when 65 percent of their parents did not and then 92 percent of our children stay out of the juvenile justice system and 50% of their parents were incarcerated at one time. And then once again, 98% avoid early parenting, which is obviously creates intergenerational poverty. And 84, 85% were born to a teen parent. But those are the kind of things that we need to change and do with, once again, evidence-based outcomes, third-party evaluations.
0: Could I just ask Dino and also Tony, if you can lean back in here, are those similar to the kinds of numbers that you're talking about and that you're seeing in terms Terms of the need?
4: Yes. Our measurements for our families, um, we like to see the shorter on, the time they're on the program and the more margin they're creating, again, increase of savings and de- decreasing of debts, the less likely they're going to be on our program or any program for that matter.
3: I, I think much of what Duncan said, we could, could say some similar things uh, in terms of the Looking at our kids' parents and looking at the students that we now service, I mean, I already gave you some stats on Jefferson High School and how we were able to to turn that particular situation around. But Portland Public Schools' graduation rate versus our graduation rate, big difference. So if you're looking at some stats that would suggest that things are going to be different, you're just trying to make sure that you now have more young people who get across the finish line. But beyond that, the one thing that I would add to this, to this conversation about going forward in the future and we, as we talk about collaboration and partnerships, we already know in this town, in just about every category, who the agencies are who get the outcomes and do a great job. We know it, no question about it, but we don't fund them. We fund everybody. Because we live in Portland nice, and we want to make sure that everybody has equal chance to play the game. I believe that we need two funding streams. We need a funding stream with 60 or 70% of the money to go to the proven, truly proven programs that actually get the work done, and all the government entities need to get behind them and scale them up. The other 30% needs to be there for the innovative, new whatever that needs a shot to get in the game. We refuse to do that. And at some point, we just, as Duncan is saying, somebody has to have courage enough to say, man, let's stop this already. We already have all the agencies that we need. We don't need to look around the country. We got them right here. They do great work, but we don't fund them to the degree that they need to.
2: Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Can I and, and I wanted to add to that to say that if, if that occurred, think of the continuity of services we'd be providing instead of all of us spending so much time chasing money. But it's a complex issue. I wouldn't want to be a government funder. But I do want to say with the, the concept of outcomes, we're also looking at people getting off of public assistance as another indicator, which is happening for our financial capability folks that we're, we're working with, and getting sustained jobs and job promotions, we're seeing that. But the other thing none of us have really spoken to is the qualitative aspect in terms of what our clients experience, and we're working really hard on that at MFS. We're talking about what what are you learning, what do you know, what are you doing differently, and hearing their voices, and that's really, really critical.
1: It's interesting that just as an observation, the, the work that all of you are doing is, is fine work, and your customers, I'm speaking from the perspective of a business owner who's listening to this show. Your customers don't have the opportunity to quote-unquote buy the services that you're offering. You have to get your funding from an organization or an entity that has some stake in what you're doing, but for the most part, they have other pressures upon them that determine where the money goes. And so a business owner doesn't have the challenge that you have of constantly having to serve the customer, the customer having the demand upon you, but the, the demand that they put upon you, I mean like the desire to consume your service is not like a f- force, but the demand that they put upon you does not come with the funding necessary to provide the service, whereas with a business, a business owner who might be listening to this, the environment is different. If they provide something that a customer wants, and it's highly desirable, those customers will come with the funding to keep the business going. And so it's a very different set of, of difficulties that you're dealing with that maybe business owners don't understand.
5: One thing, though, that we have in common with business owners is we're passionate about return on investment, and most nonprofits haven't thought that way historically. So in the case of Friends of the Children, every dollar spent literally saves $7 down the road. And that was done by the Harvard Business Association Independent Study of Friends of the Children. But Tony has done a similar study. in this. I think it's $10 for every dollar spent at SEI. Saves $10 out in the future. But we all, and, the, and government officials, think in the short term. And we need to change our thinking about the medium and long term and once again redesign the entire system.
0: Almost sounds like so many people are having you know, passionate idea around founding a nonprofit to accomplish a goal that there if we could possibly encourage them somehow to join an existing nonprofit and contribute to that, that that might be fruitful.
7: Is that what you're suggesting? Well, I can say for for Classic Wines Auction, I mean, that's very much, again, the basis for our mission is the idea that people can support Classic Wines, come one evening, come to one event, you know, come to multiple events. We don't just have one event a year and benefit six charity partners benefiting children and families. So the impact that someone can have through one connection source is huge. But we, we hear people supporting that idea because there are so many nonprofits and because people are being asked for so much from so many different entities, the idea of knowing that there is this one resource is really you know, advantageous and attractive to folks.
0: Dino, I thought you wanted to weigh in a minute ago.
4: Yeah, to Perry's point about business and wanting folks to kind of have access to money and wanting services and so on, Our model is a little bit different in that we require things of our families. We require that they pay $70 a month as a service fee. They have to volunteer two hours a month. The idea is the skin in the game kind of approach. And the term that we use is called the dignity of the exchange. So they don't leave their dignity at the door when they come in. And I would imagine the other folks here would agree with that idea that the dignity of the human is really important as it relates to their own ability to kind of pull
1: themselves out with the help and services that folks get. I'm just curious, what percentage of your operating revenue is made up by that financial skin 70% of of your operating revenue is covered by the people who you're serving putting money into your wow that's fantastic
4: which gives us the freedom to work our services a little bit differently and doesn't rely on as much need you know, sure. We need still need to make up that thirty percent by
1: donations and grants and so on. I have another question with regard to funding organizations such as these. There's a organization called Charity Water who has successfully gone out and gotten high net worth individuals and organizations to cover their operating costs, so that the donations of the individual, the private, the personal donation, can be funneled one hundred percent into the programs that they're delivering on the ground. Are any of you operate or looking at that sort of a model?
7: Well, I would say with Classic Wines Auction, the way that uh, our model operates I guess it's somewhat similar our board our classic wines auction board their goal is to cover all of the expenses of our events and and our operating costs through you know their efforts well, so that d- 100% you know of w- what we are raising is going back to you know the, the charities or as much of that as as possible
1: when you say their effort yeah. are you talking about their personal wealth funds you're operating
7: well in large part are using their resources and connections to to you know to support our events but the the idea that their efforts, either personally or otherwise, are using to you know, are being used to cover the expenses, so that again, as, as much as uh, you know, 100% as close to that um, as possible, can go back to the charities.
6: Can I clarify this? This organization you were talking about, they have one person or a few people who are funding most of their programming. Yes, yes. Yeah, so we actually have a slightly different, maybe, yeah, slightly different way that we are funded. 70% of our funding comes from individual donors, and that actually allows us a lot of flexibility and allowed us to pretty successfully weather the recession. We were not reliant upon grants or larger donations. We don't accept government money um, in order to stay afloat.
1: Mm. I, it, I offer that model because it seems to me that some people who don't personal individuals who donate to nonprofit organizations want to see their money impact the efforts on the ground as opposed to going to operations and program administration. Yeah. And so if you can get this cadre of high net worth individuals or businesses covering your 100% of your operating costs, then the public donations that are made can go straight to solving the problem.
2: Yeah. Judy wants to weigh in. That probably works in some cases, but one of the problems is the strings that are tied to the government grants often require that certain things happen along the lines of programs. So that idea would include some systemic changes in order for it to actually fly.
0: And I think that we can all agree, based on the conversation today, that systemic change and and looking to systemic change is pretty important. Shelter, beyond uh, shelter, we need health, adequate nutrition, education, role models, relationships with adults. These are some of the things that, that were my takeaways from today. And, as Tony pointed out, We need to fund proven programs. We need two revenue streams, he said, proven programs and innovative programs. So if we've got all that, I I think we pretty well solved it, don't you?
1: (laughs) Heather, Judy, Duncan, Tony, Dino, and Shannon, thank you all for being guests today. This was a stimulating conversation for me, and thank you for being a part of our
0: show. And such a great part of the community. Thanks for joining us for Biz 503 on PRP. Have a great weekend.